0: This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. of Vietnam, about 40 miles north of Pleiku, men of the 101st Airborne Division, the screaming... Vietnam
1: came from the deep background into the absolute peak of the foreground. During this same period, the AFL was growing, becoming more popular.
2: When Tech Schramm talked about the war in the 60s, he wasn't referring to Vietnam. He was talking about the NFL and the AFL, and that was the war that these men were fighting now they were in a fight for survival, and they were going to succeed at all costs.
3: Hi there, football fans. It's National Pro Highlights time again. And look at that No. Hmm. Join me for a trip around the circuit for all the big National Football League games over this exciting new development on the American sports scene
4: came to life in 1960 Ooh. with the birth of the American Football League. Damn beside it beside him, Captain. I got news for you. We're going to win the game, I
5: guarantee This has got to be one of the greatest football games I've ever seen, Paul. Hey! never 12 one now? This is the story of a
6: love affair. The story of the Denver Broncos and their days in the American Football League. You can get it done. You can get it done. What's more, you've got to get it done.
7: The AFL needed every weapon at its disposal to wage war against the more powerful NFL. The spoils of this war included fan loyalty, television money and draft choices.
2: The battles were fought on several fronts, including outer space. It's December of 65, and the Gemini 7 mission is going on. Frank Borman and James Lovell are up in space, and as often happened then, when the astronauts were in space, they would occasionally beam a message back to American television, and Borman, who was an Oilers season ticket holder and a big Oilers fan, sent back the message, tell Tommy Nobis to sign with the Oilers of the AFL, because Tommy Nobis was the All-American linebacker for Texas, who was one of the plums of that year's draft class that both leagues were fighting over. Nobis would eventually touch down in the NFL.
7: Touchdowns in the AFL often resulted when teams flew by the seat of their pants. In the new age of televised sports, the league's fan-friendly, fast-paced style of play helped pro football surpass baseball as America's favorite sport in 1965. Football became the national game.
8: Without the ladder of television to stand on, that doesn't happen. The American Football League arose right at the time television and football got married. The AFL threw the ball, threw the ball a lot, moved the ball around a lot. And throwing the ball uh, and the excitement that that generated
7: uh, made it automatic hit on television. In 1964, the AFL signed a new TV contract with NBC. The deal, which took effect in 1965, guaranteed each of the league's eight teams close to one million dollars apiece. The NFL remained the more popular league, but in terms of TV revenue, the pact placed the rivals on near equal footing.
9: That contract was very important because it gave us some sustainability. It frightened the hell out of the NFL.
2: Art Modell said, after that deal was signed by NBC, he knew the AFL was there to stay. And as Art Rooney, the owner of the Steelers, said, they don't have to call us Mr. anymore. David Sonny Werblin
7: was instrumental in negotiating the NBC contract. In 1963, Werblin had purchased the bankrupt Titans from Harry Wismer, The titans had been a laughing stock ever since the AFL began. Because
1: they were so bad, it was like creative destruction, right, (laughs) in in capitalism. They had to be destroyed. And something new had to rise up in New York, the most important market.
7: New York's AFL franchise was renamed the Jets. The eccentric Wismer was unhappy about the prospect of losing his floundering team. Became even more unhappy when he learned that Sonny Werblin was a potential buyer.
6: At 21 Club, my dad and uh, Harry Wismer had dinner. Commissioner Foss had expressed to Wismer that uh, my father and a group had interest in, in buying the Titans.
10: I uh, expected a lot of people to be bidding, but the truth was that there was only one bidder, and that was Werblin.
6: Harry Wisner, after a few cocktails, yelled an ethnic slur at my dad. My dad was about to go after him.
10: That's when I said, stop it! I know we've had enough of this nonsense here.
6: And my father said, I will own your team in one year. And did.
1: In a sense, the history of the American Football League is the tale of two owners. Harry, who allowed this franchise to disintegrate, and Sonny Werblin. Sonny was the world's greatest talent agent. Came out of Rutgers during the Depression. He became a big band booker, you know, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, all these guys. After television came in, he was the agent for Gleason.
9: Like a
2: star.
7: Jackie Gleason, Ed Sullivan, and many of the biggest names in the entertainment business owed their television careers to Werblin. Werblin hired Weeb Eubank as head coach. In the NFL, Eubank had coached the Baltimore Colts to two world championships. One year after getting a new coach, the Jets got a new home.
0: The millions who will visit the New York World's
1: Fair in the next two years will also gaze on a glamorous new sports center, Shea Stadium. New York's Cinderella football team, the Jets, take over the park next fall. Okay, now. Let's go, Mets! Let's go, Jets!
11: People get history wrong and say, oh, Jets, they named them because of the uh, New York Mets. But that's quite wrong. Sonny chose the name Jets because Shea Stadium was going to be between LaGuardia and Idlewild Airport, and we were entering the space or jet age, and that's how we got the name New York Jets. When we opened Shea Stadium, the World's Fair was still going on.
0: The New York World's Fair has been visited by 51 million people.
11: And more than 52,000 fans thronged to see the Jets open the 1964 AFL season against the Denver Broncos. There was so much traffic because of the World's Fair going on at the same time. People abandoned their cars on the Grand Central Parkway, actually closed off a lane to go to the, uh, to the game.
7: Werblin's flair for promotion brought show business to Shea Stadium.
6: He saw the game experience as being an entertainment experience, and that's why he hired this 100-piece Bob Cleveland orchestra. He used to play out in the end zone, created this little model. Jet used to run up and down the sidelines.
10: The largest opening day crowd in
8: AFL
3: history, 53,000 strong, swells Shea Stadium in New York City. 61,929. Count them. They filled the new park from top to bottom. Let's go, 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 Jets! Let's show them how to move.
6: What he brought to professional football in this country is showmanship. The fate
1: of the American Football League was determined in New York City for a lot of reasons. New York is the capital of advertising, Of the was then the television networks, uh, publishing, the money, and it was also the home of New York Giants. The Giants were very glamorous and exciting and the
6: high-style people began to follow them and try to get into Yankee Stadium. The Giants definitely, at the time, had an elitist attitude and, I think, an image. I think a lot of people sort of resented that, and the Jets took the opposite approach of being a team for the blue-collar worker, for the average Joe.
7: The average Joe was starting to see an influx of above-average young talent on the Jets. Fullback Matt Snell was drafted in 1964 and won Rookie of the Year honors. Snell had also been drafted by the Giants. His signing represented a significant victory against the Mara family, longtime Giants owners who embodied the entrenched NFL establishment.
1: The contest between Harry Wismer and the Gentleman Maras was a mismatch made in NFL heaven. The contest between Sonny Werblin and the NFL was something quite different.
11: One time, Wellington Mara saw all the attention the Jets were getting. He wrote a letter to The New York Times sports uh, editor complaining about the amount of space that the Jets were getting in The New York Times. It really showed that we had made
9: an inroad into the scene of New York. I can't imagine him anywhere else but New York. Can you? Sonny Werblin? I mean, it was perfect. It was a match made in heaven, and I admired Sonny because he was gonna take on one of the premier franchises in all sports in the toughest town in America, and he beat him.
3: What is it that has the fans flocking to cheer their favorite teams week after week? We asked American football league commissioner Joe Foss to give us the facts and figures on the attendance story and the reasons behind it. Here's what he had to say.
7: This year in the American Football League, we've been real enthusiastic and happy with our attendance. To start out with, we started the 1965 season with a 54% increase on season ticket sales.
3: The American Football League in 1965, as never before, has caught the imagination of the fans across the country with its wide open action and hotly contested games.
12: We weren't going to run a three downs in a cloud of dust people want to see the wide open game. In fact, we were a more wide open uh, football uh, league than the National Football League.
13: Statistically speaking, there's no merit to the argument that the AFL had a more wide open brand of football. In fact, I would define the AFL as a sloppier, much lower quality brand of football, quite frankly. The number of interceptions in the AFL dwarfed the number of interceptions in the NFL. Not once in the decade of the 60s did AFL quarterbacks collectively average 50% completion percentage over the course of a season. Every year of the 60s, they failed to complete half their passes. Meanwhile in the NFL, every year of the 60s, NFL quarterbacks completed more than half their passes. In every single year of the 1960s, NFL quarterbacks posted a higher
7: completion percentage, a higher average gain per pass attempt, and a higher
13: passer rating than AFL quarterbacks. In both leagues, they were consistently going down the field, this long ball, deep threat type of passing strategy, where you're trying to stretch the defense vertically. We tend to attribute that to people like Al Davis. The NFL was just doing it better. Their quarterbacks were more accurate, their receivers were better, they were catching longer touchdown passes, they were doing it more consistently. During the 1960s, there were three
7: 99-yard pass plays. All three were produced in the NFL, not the AFL. The NFL's popularity was based on a total package that included proficient passing, black and blue defense, and the power sweep. But the AFL's identity was built almost exclusively on high-scoring, up-tempo offense.
5: When you look back at AFL stars, you know, you're thinking just generally of offensive players and specifically, you know, of speed and wide receivers and, and throwing the ball.
1: Kansas City's Lynn Dawson, all-league quarterback, fires one to Otis
2: Taylor, another one of the many thrilling performers in the star-studded AFL.
12: drafted players and tried to sign players to sell tickets, and so consequently, I think that when you uh, talk about selling tickets, you want to get offensive players. As an example, Earl Faison was a very, very good defensive player that went to San Diego. I don't know how many tickets Faison sells. I do know that Lance Allworth sells a lot of tickets.
7: Lance Allworth personified the AFL's image as an exciting, pass-happy football league. Quarterback John Hagel and Allworth formed a potent pass-catch partnership. But in 1965, they weren't exactly household names.
0: The New York Jets meet the Chargers at San Diego, and the home team takes charge. The Jets can't cope with the Charger combination of John Paddle and Lance Alworth.
7: But for those who evaluated pro football talent, Alworth's name was synonymous with excellence.
11: Lance Alworth was now the standard by which wide receivers in college were being compared. They would say, you'd say to him, well, how about that wide receiver you have? What are his chances of playing? he hey, he's probably as good as anybody in the NFL, but he's not at all worth. It. That was the first time that the standard of talent at any position in football was an AFL player.
7: was destined to become the first AFL player to be inducted into the Hall of Fame.
3: Long pass. Lance Hallworth, the greatest receiver in pro football, takes the ball in stride and doesn't stop until he reaches the end zone.
7: Other outstanding receivers included Denver's Lionel Taylor and New York's Don Maynard, a future Hall of Famer. Like Maynard and Taylor, Oakland's Art Powell had starred in the AFL since its inception. The league also boasted running backs who could catch the ball downfield. Denver's Abner Haynes excelled as a deep threat, as did the Raiders' Clem Daniels. During the mid 60s, Daniels was the driving force of Oakland's offense. I'm
11: Glory's passes. Clem Daniels has it, and he's going all the way. Man alive, what's this? He keeps on going. This is really wild. And Daniels
3: now is really going to take charge. He's going to complete his run in a Chrysler Newport. What a play! And what a car! It's everybody's driving ambition. Big Double O Jim Otto is still running interference. Now he heads for his Plymouth. It's a fury.
11: A fast, good-looking heavyweight with plenty of passing power. In
7: 1964, passing power was a concern for Sonny Werblin's Jets. Werblin felt that starter Dick Wood lacked star quality. In one preseason game, the Jets owner hoped that former Titan Lee Grosscup would emerge as his marquee quarterback.
1: Sonny and I walked to the stadium, and while we were walking, he said very quietly, he said, if Lee Grosscup has a good day today, I'm gonna to make him the highest paid athlete in America since Babe Ruth. And I looked at Sonny and I said, why? <laughs> I had played with Grosscup. His achievements were not Ruthian by any means. Now
14: by Ron Neary, defensive end, causes <laughs> Titan quarterback Lee Grosscup to throw a wobbly pass
1: Sonny patiently explained that money can be news. Big money can be big news. Lee Groskup didn't have a good day that day. But the point is that Sonny had a check looking for a quarterback. And eventually, the next April, he found the perfect quarterback. Watch
7: number 12, that's Joe Namath. A standout at Alabama, Namath was courted by the Jets and the NFL Cardinals.
5: Two representatives from the Cardinals came to my dormitory in University of Alabama, and we met up in my dorm room. And they told me they had drafted me, which I was aware of, and uh, asked me what I wanted to sign. And I told them $200,000, and they both Lean back, oh my goodness, you know, fell down on the bed, the guy was standing here and fell, leaned back against the wall screaming like they were in agony. And after they calmed down a little bit, I said, there's one more thing. It's what? I said, a new car. They said, a new car too? I said, yeah. They said, what kind of car? I said, a Lincoln Continental. <laughs> my first meeting with David A. Sonny Werblin, Mr. Werblin, and Weeb Bank took place at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Not my dorm room. At the Beverly Hills Hotel in Los Angeles. Mr. Werblin started out, listen, I don't want to quibble over money. We want you. New York wants you. This is what I'm going to offer you. I want you to take it. $300,000 to play for the Jazz. I was only thinking of two to start with, right? This three hundred dollars went up uh, a bit after we negotiated things. You know, uh,
14: these people here, your future coach and the owner, Mr. Werblin, have uh, referred to you as the greatest football player in college this year. Uh, You haven't even put on a jet uniform yet. Uh, You already feel a little bit of pressure? Well, uh, pressure just makes it go all the more. Uh-huh. I kind of like pressure a little bit. Mr. Werblin, you're the man that's given all this money. We don't know the exact figures, but... Uh, I mean, you're not going to you, know it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, how, 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 what kind of an estimate, or what uh, can you
6: tell us about it? Well, Bob, all I can say is that we think it's, it's a lot of money, but it's commensurate with uh, his ability.
4: All of a sudden, they're giving this guy $400,000. Well, you know, it was a ridiculous amount of money. But it did get you looking, didn't it? I mean, it, it really put the AFL on the map. I think it was probably the smartest $400,000 that they ever spent in sports.
5: Well, I doubt if anybody's worth $400,000 right out of college, but uh, I think Joe Namath's going to be a fine quarterback.
3: Joe Namath, the Jets' $400,000 quarterback, passes to Bill Mathis. Joe Namath, the world's richest rookie, backpedals and takes to bake Turner. It
13: seems to be pretty much a general consensus that He has all those qualities that quarterbacks need to not only last long in pro football, but achieve success. throws a good, firm ball. He has quick release, which seems to be one of the qualities that every coach is looking for in his quarterback. Courage
7: under fire was another quality that Namath possessed.
5: Well, any defensive lineman on any team likes to hit a quarterback because the quarterback gets hit less than anybody else, and so when they do hit him, uh, it gives them an extra bit of pleasure, you know. We, we played the Boston Patriots, and I picked up the safety blitz right on my butt, and I couldn't even sit down. It hurt so bad. I, I got home, and I took the worst-tasting stuff I could find, scotch, and I drank it for five years. <laughs> Although
7: hampered by gimpy knees, Namath had guts to go along with his gunslinger reputation. It was Namath's heart, as well as his arm, that made him a commanding box office draw.
3: Namath's name is magic, especially in New York, where record numbers are turning out, hoping to see the former Alabama star. Seldom does an athlete come along who electrifies a crowd like Namath.
7: Off the field, Broadway Joe's brash charm and charisma won the heart of New York City. Werblin's skill for star-making Help Namath the natural quarterback become Namath the national celebrity.
5: Sonny Werblin is the man who made Joe Namath Broadway Joe. It just fit and he loved it. He was comfortable. He was a bachelor. He had that smile. You know, I mean, every girl in America loved him, you know, and he just, he just run along for the ride. There was
11: a look about him uh, that women absolutely loved. And he had a great smile and great eyes. He also not only reached the men who thought of him as macho, but women.
7: Thanks to Namath's magnetism, the Jets and the AFL enlarged their national profile. Preseason games were then called exhibition games, and the Jets played all six of theirs on the road. They visited cities like Scottsdale, Arizona, and Richmond, Virginia in allentown pa they played two years in a row and namath won new fans for the
15: afl i remember walking into the stadium for a practice session and the first thing i saw as i walked in was joe namath and don maynard playing catch out on the field and and the two players were were standing there throwing passes probably 20 or 30 yards away from each other and the first pass I saw Namath through, he skidded the ball about halfway between he and Don Maynard. And as the ball skidded, it came up and hit Maynard in the letters in a tight spiral. And remember, the friends and I looked at each other and said, did he want to do that? Well, the next three or four passes, he did the same thing. He was throwing the ball, skidding it about 15 yards away, and for the next 15 yards, it would come up and hit Maynard in the letters, and we were like, can you believe this guy can do this at will? In 1965,
7: Namath was the AFL Rookie of the Year. Two years later, he became the first quarterback in history to pass for over 4,000 yards. Broadway Joe Namath and Sonny Werblin, the leading man and the impresario. Together they helped change the fortunes of the American Football League.
5: The NFL was trying to kill us. I mean, they were trying to put the AFL out of business, and Mr. Werblin, he made Broadway Joe the thing to get people to come to stadium, to see Joe. Mr. Werblin, being in show business, believed in the star system. He believed in filling the stands, putting people on the field that the fans could relate to or they wanted to come see special, the star system. Mr. Werblin allowed his team, especially me, to be myself, and it was in the fishbowl in New York. You know, it was wonderful.
7: In the fierce fight for college players, the NFL created a program known as Operation Handholding to ensure draft day superiority of the AFL.
14: That's the name I got. Dude.
12: Operation Handholding was put into effect by Pete Rosell. A handholder was an individual that was assigned to a player. His duty was to keep that player out of contact. With somebody from the American Football League. Basically, the idea was to remove the player from his residence,
2: put him under NFL control, and hold him there until you get him signed. That way, the AFL could not reach these players; the NFL would be able to control until they got the name on the dotted line.
14: I had a limousine that to take me anywhere, and, and whenever I wanted to go to uh, lunch, dinner, or whatever, and I mean, it was just royal treatment. And I just thought they were being nice, but I figured it out as time went on that uh, you know I wasn't getting any calls from anybody from the AFL. <laughs> they weren't allowing any calls to come through, I guess. But uh, I found out that the other league was trying to get in touch with me, and NFL did a pretty good job of keeping me away from the other league.
9: Atlanta selects Tommy Nobis. Roosevelt was the puppet master with all of that, and we didn't have that kind of central control. So we in Oakland we just went out and did what we had to do. And we used money. I mean, no one had agents in those days. I remember one player, I won't tell you his name, but I I was in a motel room with him trying to sign him. And I had an attaché case with $5,000 in greenbacks in it. And he was getting close to signing, I knew. So I said, wait a minute. And I took all those greenbacks and I laid them out on the bed. It just covered that bed from top to bottom. And he got a on the a phone with his wife and said, honey, you just can't believe what this man put on the bed. And that signed him. No agents, cash.
2: There was a great deal of intrigue here, a great deal of spy versus spy, a great deal of counter-espionage that was a, an imitation to some level of the Cold War that was going on in the real world at that time. The subterfuge, the deceit that was used on, on both sides was considerable. To sign receiver Otis Taylor, the Chiefs
7: outmaneuvered the Cowboys in a scenario worthy of Mission Impossible.
2: Otis was in a Holiday Inn in Richardson, Texas, being guarded
12: by the NFL um, babysitters. And meanwhile, uh, a fellow by the name of Lloyd Wells, uh, who worked for Kansas City and uh, Hank Stram, was able to somehow find where we had him sequestered.
2: Lloyd was trying to figure out some way to get word to Otis Taylor. And at one point, he posed as a photographer for Jet Magazine and got in to Otis's room to take some pictures. And the message he communicated then to Otis was very simple. It was, if you don't get out of this hotel and come with me, I am going to lose my damn job.
12: And what took place is, is that our fella, Wally Reed probably had a little too much liquid livation and fell asleep. And while Wally Reed slept, Taylor left. They went out the window, that is what they did.
2: In this element that this battle was being conducted, there, there really were no rules. The rules were, whoever signs the most good players, well-known players, wins. 12th round of the 64
7: draft, the Bills selected an immigrant refugee of the 1956 Hungarian Revolution who would revolutionize pro football.
3: Pete Gogolak was different because a soccer-style kicker had never kicked before in pro football. His foot-hand coordination was unbelievable, but how explosive that ball was when it kicked off, I mean, he could kick it over the line, never worry about it getting blocked. Gogolak was really a novelty. The soccer-style kicker, you know, Blanta threw passes, Gino Cappelletti, guys like that that really had two jobs, not just one. You know, he was, I think, right at the forefront of the term specialist. He was on that team for one reason, and that was to kick the ball. When he came along as a kicking specialist and could kick soccer style,
4: the percentages went from 60 to 80. Or in that neighborhood, kicking became much more of an offensive weapon than it had ever been before.
1: Even today, don't know how they get that ball airborne, kicking it like they do. I just can't envision them doing that. But but they do. They developed a, a knack uh, t- to do it, and. Uh, there are no straight-on kickers anymore, so it, it didn't take many years that uh, they just replaced all of the head-on kickers.
3: Kick on its way, end over it. Does it have the distance? It
10: is good. Lawrence Tynes has kicked the Giants to the Super Bowl.
3: I should have patented this kick. You know, when I started, to get a good patent lawyer. So everybody after after me, every time somebody goes in and kick you know, give me a quarter, at least a quarter. This is you know, this is kind of a Guga-like style.
13: I think the fact that Gogolak and and the Bills we first played for got people to look at that style, it was so revolutionary, that I think is really something the AFL deserves credit for. For having the open mind to go deviate so far from the accepted norm, because that did have a material impact how football was played. I think it's symbolic what we want to believe about the AFL, that it was more innovative.
7: Gogolak's influence would soon extend beyond the playing field, becoming the spark that ignited a talent war between the rival leagues. There's been an awful lot of rumors Uh, right now. uh, They claim that uh, the National Football League and the American Football League might merge into three conferences.
3: Well, our main concern right now, the NFL is making it as uh, strong as possible. And we haven't given thought to anything else really. What about a championship game between the NFL and the AFL? Well, I would say the same answer. <laughs> We're just, uh, we, we've been in litigation for over three and a half years with the American Football League, and there hasn't been much opportunity to think of anything beyond our own league. It's still years away. <laughs>
7: Pete Rosell's public pronouncements belied the real concerns he shared with the NFL's owners about the AFL. The college talent bidding wars had bloated operating costs and a growing number of teams were coming around to the idea of a settlement with the rival league.
12: They had a great deal of tenacity, those people that formed the AFL. And during the 1966 season, I think, i would had some discussions with Tex Schramm and uh, also with other owners in the league. And I got the feeling that a merger might be possible and that if it were to be accomplished, it would be best be through discussions with Tex who lived in Dallas and Lamar Hunt, the fellow man of honor, he would be good to talk to and keep it confidential. I knew something was going on because I asked Tex uh, a question and and he said, gosh, he said, I just can't do that this weekend. I'm going to the Pimlico Racetrack. <laughs> Tex was not a horse race fan. And so I knew that I was getting some kind of an excuse. And uh, little did I know that he and Lamar were meeting at the Love Field. We map.
14: By the Texas Ranger statue in, in the lobby of Love Field Airport, the whole world could see us there meeting. The reason for the going out and meeting in the parking lot was that I was on my way to Houston and uh, for an AFL meeting the next day. And incidentally, it was the meeting where Joe Foss resigned and he was
7: replaced by Al Davis. The combative Davis would be the AFL's wartime commissioner. Ironically, replacing a man who'd actually been a decorated war hero in the retiring Joe Foss. And so in
0: 1966, the great rivalries continued. The great new stars who came into the American Football League in 1965.
4: The owners wanted somebody who would legally or I'm not sure I want to use the word illegally, but do whatever it took to not only bring the AFL to parity with the NFL, but overtake it. And Al Davis was probably the one person whom they knew could do it. Davis bided his
7: time until Pete Gogolak and Giants owner Wellington Mara made a fateful agreement.
3: Back in the old country, they said, you know, if you do well, you know, you can ask for you. You can't be ashamed to ask for a raise, But the Bills wouldn't give it to me. So I became a free agent, and the Giants signed me. I didn't realize that this really created a war between the two leagues.
0: And there was an unwritten rule that we wouldn't sign each other's free agents. And the Giants and the National Football League, through its commissioner, broke the rule. The unwritten rule. It wasn't illegal by any means.
9: The Gogolak signing was unfathomable to the other NFL owners. They couldn't understand why Mara did that. Mara reacted because all the stuff that was going on in New York about Namath and the $400,000, the Giants were in trouble. So he thought signing Gogolak would help him. And one of those owners, it might have been Carol Rosenblum of the Colts, who said, if you wanted a kicker, I'd have given you one.
0: I'll never forget sitting there with Ralph Wilson that day, and I said to him, we just got to merge it. And he said to me, what do you mean by that, you know? And you didn't ask Ralph. And I said, we just got to merge. Just
7: watch what happens. An avid student of military history, Davis applied those lessons to launch his campaign against the NFL.
3: It was a great quote from Aldo Cassell, longtime Raider executive. He said, uh, the NFL uh, uh, fired a shot with a revolver, and Al Davis responded with a machine gun. And that's exactly what he did. He went out, he said, all bets are off. And they went out and they began signing NFL players to future contracts with the American Football League. All the AFL
2: needed to do was sign a few stars. And they were going to, as Davis put it, bring the NFL to its knees. Davis wanted to go particularly strong after players on the Los Angeles Rams. This was Al's mindset. Pete Rosell had come into the league as publicity director for the Los Angeles Rams. One of his oldest friends was Dan Reeves, the owner of the Rams. And Davis felt like if he got players from the Rams to sign with the AFL, Reeves would pressure his friend for an accommodation.
7: Al's opening assault was to have the Raiders sign Rams quarterback Roman Gabriel to a contract.
0: They knew that we could destroy their league. We could hold the Rams hostage because most of their players wanted to leave and it was a preliminary strike to let them know what's going to happen if they continue this.
5: Al's exit strategy was not a merger. Al's exit strategy was take them on, become their equals, then become better than them.
7: Davis's most important ally in the NFL raids was in Houston. Boiler ownership's aggressive attitude and deep pockets advanced the new commissioner's strategy.
1: But Adams was, I, I know, take your tie off, roll your sleeves up, let's have a beer and maybe a chaser to go with it and talk a deal. And people like But Adams, they also had the oil man's mentality, which was risk, gamble, go big or go home.
14: That picture brings back fond memories of the 1960. 1960- championship game of the American
7: football. Adam struck a gusher when he targeted the Chicago Bears, stealing their all-pro tight end, Mike Ditka.
14: I called Mike up, and I said, Mike, I'd like to have you come down and become an order. He said, you couldn't pay me that money. Uh, But he says, you know how much I make up here? He said, I make $125,000. You couldn't pay anything like that.
7: I said, Mike, how would you like to make $250,000? He said, what do I have to do? (laughs) So I said, all you have to do is play out your option. Adams then moved quickly to sign San Francisco's John Brody, the NFL's leading passer. This
14: time, give me that. tuck, give me that eight yard out. Red right pattern, 55, X pinch release. Half back out. On one. Ready for. <laughs> Streak it,
7: T. Brody signed a million dollar deal with Houston, rocking the NFL to its core. League owners feared more player defections were still to come.
4: They were rating our quarterbacks, they were rating our stars, and we were going back and rating bears. You cannot operate a business that way. And it was just the whole thing was coming apart. If there was going to be a peace, it was going to have to be on our terms. If we were having problems, their league was doubling those or tripling those, even though they had a television contract. It's amazing how sometimes the objective can become. Important enough to overcome some of your real strong inner feelings. The agreement
7: called for a common college draft and championship game in 1967, with full merger into one league by 1970. The players who jumped to the AFL returned to their original teams. After seven hard-fought years, the Foolish Club was a legitimate member of the NFL fraternity.
14: Within a 48-hour period, from the time the merger was announced, the stock of the Patriots Patriots evaluated $3,100,000 on the open
10: market.
7: AFL teams welcomed that financial windfall, since part of the merger agreement required them to pay millions of dollars in reparations to NFL clubs. But that wasn't what most angered Al Davis.
8: He felt he was undercut because Hunt and Tech Schramm cut a merger deal behind his back. The last guy they told about the merger was Davis. And when he found out, he was really pissed off. He said, we had him whipped. There's no reason we had to settle for
0: any of the things we did. We had him whipped. I've always said that the uh,
10: generals win the war, but the politicos, the politicians, make the peace. There was so much bitterness, so much acrimony. The tension in the room was really amazing. You couldn't imagine these people actually being in the same room. The National Football League guys were all on one side, the American Football League people were all on the other side. It was as if you walked into the room and there was an usher standing there saying, friends of the groom, friends of the brides," and everybody just went to the seven ways. Uh, who does this panel
11: think won the war, who won the war? I feel that's a league matter. <laughs> <laughs>
7: The big news after the merger was the launching of expansion teams into southern cities. The AFL's new entry was in Miami, the home base of a young radio talk show host named Larry King.
4: I worked at WIOD in Miami. I did a nightly radio show from Surfside Six, the houseboat that was a very famous television show. And they let us use that boat for our radio show. So we were docked opposite the Fondableau on the inland waterway. Many great guests who would come, stay at the Fontainebleau and come across the street. And along come Danny Thomas and this group, and they bring the Miami Dolphins. The Miami Dolphins come to town.
0: Amid
8: all the bright lights and pretty girls that are synonymous with Miami, Florida, the American Football League kicks off the 1966 season, spotlighting its newest team, the Miami Dolphins.
4: Danny was had maybe 1% of the team. Joe Robbie put the whole package together.
7: I'd been enormously impressed uh, the entire time I'd been in Miami with the uh, enthusiasm of the football team.
4: Joe was a genius of sorts. He had no money of his own. He once ran for governor of South Dakota, almost won. Very big in Democratic Party politics.
7: Operating on a tight budget and with almost no lead time to assemble the team, the Dolphins scramble to publicize their new players while making the best of bad training camp facilities. St.
1: Petersburg was not the place for a pro football team to train. They had no idea what was going on. We did not have a locker room. I don't know if we, we changed and did everything in our rooms.
8: So after a couple weeks in your room, it got a little bit gamey.
5: We practiced on a field that was at one of the local junior highs or high school there, which was, I mean, it had seashells on the field, and it wasn't even a football field. They just marked it off as like a part of a beach area almost. The playing
7: surface at the Orange Bowl was a much faster track as the Dolphins and their celebrity co-owner discovered the night of the first game in franchise history.
8: Enjoying every moment of opening night is comedian Danny Thomas,
0: co-owner along with Joseph Robbie. Looks like Danny knows his football.
10: The Dolphins debut must go down in football history is the most thrilling first play ever made by any new team anywhere. Joe Hour from nearby Coral
4: Gables High School and a Georgia Tech alumnus takes the opening kickoff and races 95 yards
7: for a touchdown.
4: Joe Auer took the opening kickoff, and Danny Thomas ran down the sidelines with him. As he ran, Danny ran.
8: Many years later, Johnny Carson asked him for his most memorable moment, and he said, well, the most memorable moment in his career uh, was when Joe Hour." Ran the opening kickoff of the Miami Dolphin franchise back for a touchdown. And, God, I sat up in bed and went, did I just hear my name on the Johnny Carson show?
7: The 66 Dolphins won just three games. And even those were witnessed by only a handful of Florida fans who stayed away from the Orange Bowl in droves putting Miami's cash-strapped ownership in a deep financial hole.
14: If certain players tell us in town here, and we hear from other people who have done business all year
7: with the Dolphins, that they've been waiting on the money that's owed them to this day. Now, is that a rumor? There's There's never been a player that hasn't been paid on time since this team went in business. I was sent to
8: pick up the projector at the repair place, and I had to pay for it with my own money because they wouldn't let me... The Dolphins didn't have good enough credit. They wouldn't bill the Dolphins, and I had to pay for it with my own money. And uh, one time, the dry cleaners that cleaned our uniform held our uniforms
7: up. Laundry was the least of Coach George Wilson's worries. When three of his quarterbacks were injured, he was forced to use the team punter, who also happened to be his son. George Wilson, Jr. was a nice guy. He wasn't the
8: picture athlete. He looked more like a uh, college professor or maybe one of the trainers or something.
4: I mean, he didn't look like a football player. That was always the pressure was put on george wilson's father about his son his son was a good player not a great player whenever he started his son they lost the fans would go nuts With george the fans gave george a tough time the press gave him a tough time he started to drink but he was a guy's guy
8: george wilson was a real player coach i remember one time during training camp we'd had a really bad practice And he had us line up and started marching us around the playing field, you know, and I thought, God, I'd never seen anything like this. He ended up marching us right into the uh, swimming pool at St. Andrews with our uniforms on and everything. And it ended up being, you know, one of these funny things that everybody just had a blast doing.
7: Cooling off in the pool was a regular activity for Flipper, the team mascot in his end zone water tank.
3: Being an expansion team, we needed a lot of things to perhaps draw people into it. And Flipper was very popular at that time. He would throw the footballs back out, you know, our field goals and extra points when it was going to that end zone. So Flipper was cool.
4: Whenever the Dolphins score, Flipper would go up and jump through the hoop. They decided they didn't score enough, so he would jump up on first downs. We made a first down, Flipper jump.
7: Although points and victories were rare, the Dolphins reveled in being part of something new, just as the AFL's pioneers did when the league began.
8: We were a bunch of cast-offs and rookies and people that were in the twilight of their career, all patched together in one place. We all were very cognizant of the fact that this may be our only or last chance. So it had a certain spirit and a certain friends and family feel to it that was very
7: important and very memorable. Thanks to the merger deal, the AFL's head coaches could now compete for a seat at the newly created banquet table, the first ever opportunity to face the NFL's best in a world championship game. By season's end, it was the Kansas City Chiefs sporting the biggest appetite, gobbling up their opponents on their way to the AFL title.
1: game was being put together called the Super Bowl. And I thought the Super Bowl was going to be fantastic, except the name was corny. <laughs>
4: it proved to be the opposite.
14: I think where it really came from, probably, is that my wife had given our three children at that time, each of them a Super Bowl. It was a child's toy. You could literally bounce on concrete, and it would bounce over a
5: house. And the Super Bowl under the table returned. Super Bowl made only by Womo.
14: No one ever said, let's have a bunch of market research to try to figure out a name. It was purely accidental. The press seized on it.
12: It was great for us to be the first team to be in the first Super Bowl game because Lamar Hunt founded the American Football League. You realize that every player, every person, second to everybody in the American Football League felt that you were representing the whole league in this game. It wasn't just Kansas City. It was the whole
7: league. The standard bearers of the status quo would be the Green Bay Packers,
10: led by their iconic coach.
14: Let's move a little bit now. Let's go. Let's get ourselves ready
10: here. Wellington Maris sat down and he wrote a letter to Vince Lombardi. In this letter, he said, you are our leader and you are our standard bearer. And I can't think of anybody else as well equipped to carry our flag in the battle. Now, that sounds ridiculous today. We got to understand the mood of these people.
5: And it was really on Coach Lombardi's back to beat them and beat them badly and embarrass them if he could. I think the NFL would have liked to have seen a 60 to nothing score. That
3: would have made them happy. We were known as Mickey Mouse League, I guess. But I can recall, I think it might have been in the locker room that guys were wearing those Mickey Mouse hats around to break the seriousness of the game coming up because here we are, you know, the new league coming here, playing the great... Vince Lombardi and his Green Bay Packers are a powerhouse team.
16: So, they were looking for some outside thing to take away the tension, rather than take that tension and use it and make it work for you, make you want to destroy people and and, and, and kill people. They were looking for something to minimize the tension, and I, I thought that was a wrong approach.
7: Williamson made pass catchers regret their receptions with a trademark wallop that had earned him his nickname.
16: The hammer. It was a blow, struck perpendicular to the Earth's latitude. Watch Fred
4: Williamson and his famous hammer tackle upset Quilly.
16: That, per se, is the hammer. It's like running dark in somebody's backyard, and all of a sudden the clothesline hits you. The clothesline grabs you around the neck, the head stops, but the body keeps moving. It catches you right around the throat of the head, and uh, I tell you, it really shakes you up. What I was trying to do was let the players know the attitude that got them here is the same attitude that's going to help win this game.
3: He starts spouting off what he was going to do uh, to the receivers of the Green Bay Packers, and I can recall the other defensive guys said, Freddie, geez, be quiet, man. You're killing us, because, you know, you got their attention now, now it's really going to be tough to play against them. He was ahead of his time. He's like a Muhammad Ali, that he was not afraid to voice his opinion. Back in the 60s, most of the time, the players didn't do that.
7: The inflammatory language continued at a pregame party that was supposed to be a friendly
10: gathering between the two leagues. The evening wore on, and the champagne flowed. One of the wives of one of the owners of the AFL made her way to the microphone and made a little short speech. And it started off innocently enough, but then at the very end, she said... And there's just one thing I want to say in closing, and that is, go Chiefs, go!
4: Bad taste. She didn't mean mean any
10: harm, but it came off pretty bad. In fact, the NFL owners
4: walked out.
10: And you knew what was going through their minds was, oh, my God, what if we lose that game Sunday? Is this what we're going to have to put up with the rest of our lives?
12: This match between the champs of the two leagues came about much sooner than anyone
4: expected but it's here, and it's here to stay, and it's always the first one that seems to be the most fun and the most remembered.
7: Hank Stram's Chiefs were two touchdown underdogs, but didn't play like one in a closely contested first half.
0: Dawson calling signals on first down, keeps to the ball, rolls out to the right, he's got a man clear, touchdown!
6: We look down our nose at the AFL, we probably didn't respect them enough. And I'll guarantee you, at halftime, with, at 14 to 10, there was a newfound respect for the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think that's when guys sort of got to play in the second half. They played much better. Dawson being rushed down 12.
16: changed the whole mood of the game. The attitude of the players just went like that because they figured they were going to score and there's no way we we could win.
7: Three unanswered Green Bay touchdowns put the game out of reach as the old guard NFL got the blowout win it had hoped for. With just minutes remaining, the Packers added one final indignity when Fred the Hammer Williamson was knocked unconscious after making a tackle. What
14: I can really remember is all the guys on the Green Bay Packers' side hooting and a hollering at the Hammer saying, get up, Hammer, get up, Hammer, do something, Hammer. And I mean, they got on his case. They, and I, I'm thinking, oh, how embarrassing.
3: He would tell you he wasn't knocked out. He was just waiting to hear the reaction of the fans when they heard his number, that he was down. It seemed to be a fitting end to the story of the Hammer. All the conversation, all the
5: loud mouth, all the promotion, and to have this guy leave the field on a stretcher was poetic justice. Perfect.
14: I thought Green Bay was a superior team. They had regularly beaten every team in the National Football League, and. Uh, It was apparent after the game that we weren't up to their caliber at that point.
8: Lombardi said in the locker room, prodded, I admit, by the reporters, but he said in the locker room what all of us in the NFL wanted to hear.
0: I think the Kansas City team is a real top football team, and it doesn't compare with the National Football League teams. That's what you want me
14: to say, I said it.
8: <laughs> and the only thing that I would have asked Lombardi to say is that the Chiefs aren't as good as any of the teams in the NFL, but he wouldn't go that
3: far. When Lombardi gave us no respect at all, that ticked me off, ticked all of us off.
0: The second half, we just fell apart, but we know how well we can play. We knew that we just blew the chance. so we'll be back. I mean, we're pretty
10: confident. I did feel that some of us didn't play as well as we could for whatever reasons and uh, i was not happy with that older players for kansas city because they were more of the history of the league and when they lost that it hurt them for other reasons than it hurt me that it was more personal and the world was probably ending for them next week on full-color football
5: you guys been talking for two weeks now i said i'm tired of hearing it i said i got news for you we're going to win the game, I guarantee you.
12: That's Snell the outstanding runner. He's in there! The game is over. The New York Jets are the world champions. We
13: did it! We did it! Yes! Yes! Yes!
7: The upstarts shock the world. Next week on Full Color Football, the history of the American Football League.